0: Welcome to the Park Road Podcast for March 3rd, 2019. During this season of Lent, Russ will speak on misunderstanding, identifying the problem, and Amy Jackstein will speak on understanding, seeking an answer. Their topics today are A New Religion by Russ and Mountaintop Experience by Amy.
1: for my Lord? Who'll be a witness for my Lord? Who'll be a witness for my Lord? Who will be a witness for my Lord?
2: Chapter 8 of Finding a New Way Home is entitled A New Religion. Everything that's true about Christianity is a myth. I've progressed down this road. You're coming in to kind of the end of this progression of my journey, I begin the chapter with these words. Charlie Milford was unique. Yes, I know technically speaking, everyone is unique, so I know that it distorts the literal meaning of the word, but if you knew Charlie, you know what I mean in saying he was uniquely unique. There are those rare individuals who stand out through rare ability, or serendipitous opportunity, or unique charisma. And Charlie was one of those. I have never met a person with a stronger personality, period. For good, and sometimes for ill, Charlie Mil- Milford had the strongest, most rarefied person- persona I have ever encountered. Charlie had strong opinions, and his were always right. Charlie had internal courage, And he spoke and acted on his opinions. Charlie had a sonorous voice, and he was not afraid to use it in speaking truth to power. Charlie had dynamic leadership, and he led with never a hint of self-doubt or timidity. He tells the following story to be true, and it sounds just confidently pious enough not to be doubted. In 1951, the Park Road Baptist Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, called Charles O. Milford to become their founding pastor, the founding pastor of a new Southern Baptist congregation that would eventually be planted in the pasture of a dairy farm on the outskirts of a bustling city. The church was founded in December of 1950. Charlie was called within that first year. Within a year, the new pastor had penned his own letter of resignation, And dated it 1983. He wrote the letter in 1951. He dated it 1983. And when that year rolled around and he turned 65, three decades hence, he retrieved the letter from his filing cabinet and submitted it to the chairman of the board of deacons. Enough said about Charlie Milford. I loved Charlie Milford. He was alive for the first five years that Amy and I were the pastors of this church, and we came to love Charlie. He sat on about the sixth row right in the center section every Sunday morning. I was 37 years old. I had never been the pastor of a church. Amy was almost 37 and had never been the pastor of a church. Charlie represented almost 33 years of the pastoral history of this church, and he sat right there every Sunday. And about three-fourths of the way back on the left side, Alan Lehman, who represented another 11 years of the pastoral history of this church, sat back there. Every Sunday, these two new pastors had to preach to 43 years of the history of this church. <coughs> and I'm grateful to these two men who knew how to be former pastors and to be supportive of their current pastors. Not, that can't be said of all pastors. Charlie and Alan were supportive, but Charlie had opinions that I say Charlie had the strongest personality of anybody I've ever known. And more than one time I got an email, it was addressed to Amy and me, and it said this, Dearly beloved, I forgive you. (laughs) I had no idea we had done anything that we needed forgiving for, but Charlie was writing to tell us that he forgave us. In one of those emails, he was forgiving us for making announcements before worship. Announcements have no place in worship. Worship is about God. And we come into church and we sit quietly. And what you're supposed to do when you come prepared to worship is walk in and leave all the chatter out there in the gold room, the narthex, now Helt Hall. Leave all the chatter out there and come in and sit down quietly before God. And open your bulletin and read every word and see if you agree with it. Open the hymnal. I I kid you not. Open the hymnal. Read every word of every verse of the hymns you're going to sing. And if you can't sing them because you don't believe them, well, you know you're supposed to skip over verse 2, the third line, because you don't believe that. That's what you're supposed to do when you come in to prepare for worship. It's not a time to make announcements. There are other places for that. I forgive you. Love, Charlie. (laughs) Another time, Charlie was writing... Uh, to, to forgive me for using humor in a sermon the sermons are not about humor humor is too easily misunderstood I forgive you love Charlie another time that I can recall Charlie was writing to forgive us for introducing an intercessory prayer in worship I think there had just been a natural disaster. Uh, There had just been a natural disaster. I think it was uh, relating to a hurricane in Haiti. Um, And that morning in worship, we had prayed for the people of Haiti. And Charlie said in his Charlie way, what do you want God to do for the people of Haiti? We want something to change in Haiti. We need to go to Haiti. It's up to us. And you pray this prayer of intercession, and you just give everybody free reign to just sit back and do nothing because God's going to take care of Haiti. We don't need a prayer of intercession. That's an abomination. That was one of Charlie's favorite words. I forgive you, love Charlie. (laughs) Charlie had an opinion about everything. And actually I shared many of Charlie's opinions um, and I learned much from Charlie Milford, as much as from anybody that I've written about in any of these nine chapters of this book. Um, Charlie had a journey. When Amy and I were interviewing to, to become the pastors of this church, we called one of the consultants who had known this church well, and we said, tell us about Park Road Baptist Church. And he proceeded to tell us about the first pastor of the church and the 32, almost 33 years they had had together and the journey of liberation that this church had faced together. I learned later from Charlie that that journey of liberation began when a Sunday school class asked Charlie what the Bible said about hell. What does the Bible's language about hell mean? And so Charlie says he engaged a long, detailed study about hell. And he looked at the words for hell in the Bible and where the words come from and what they mean, and uh, in part, one of, those, uh, one of those insights Charlie gained was that the word hell derives from the word Gehenna which is an Aramaic word that comes from the valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, which became hell. The valley of Gehenna on the southwest side of the city of Jerusalem was the trash dump for the city. It was a landfill. And people threw refuse in the the landfill, and they would often burn this. And so as you walk by and look down into the valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, there were always smoldering fires, sometimes carcasses of animals, sometimes peasants who couldn't afford a funeral, who had no place to be buried, their bodies would be thrown into Gehenna. And that image of a fiery, smoldering place, awful like that, became part of our understanding of the word hell. And so as Charlie studied hell and what it meant and how we ought to understand that and how we ought to use that, what we ought to know about God from that, Charlie decided that eternal damnation is a lie. There's a better way to understand hell in every instance in the Bible than the way we usually think of it is if you don't get it all right, when you die, you're going to hell. Well, that was where it began for Charlie. He decided that eternal damnation was a lie. And once you open the door, once you ask the questions, just like I found out in my book, once you start asking the questions, there's no place to stop. You just have to keep asking all the questions. And at the end of, I don't know whether this was the end of Charlie's, um, long down the journey for Charlie, he came to say, everything that's true about Christianity is a myth. Now, when I first heard those words, it rubbed me wrong. Everything that's true about Christianity is a myth. And I think Charlie knew it rubbed me wrong, and that's probably why he kept saying it.
1: <laughs>
2: a myth. I learned, is not a fairy tale, a story made up to convey some fantastical but not real truth. I had to learn that a myth is any story that has a deeper meaning than just the facts. In my book, I say, myth may not suit you as a reference to faith, but I would challenge you to reconsider How else would you characterize or categorize the words of faith? Consider, nothing that is true about Christianity can be proven. Not the existence of God. Not the divinity of Jesus. Not the presence of the Holy Spirit. Not the miracles or salvation or sin or grace or forgiveness. Everything that is true about Christianity then must be something other than, deeper than, truer than just the facts. And would, would we want it to be otherwise? If God could be proven, wouldn't that change the nature of what God is? Only temporal, material or events or processes can be tested empirically and proven factually. The theory of gravity, the processes of evolution, mathematically formulas can be proven, theorems and equations can be solved for, but is that how we want to understand God as some temporal, testable, provable part of the material universe, some kind of abstract equation and intellectual theory? God is more than just the facts. Frederick Beckner says, a myth is a truth, a truth that can never be proven, but can only be lived for, believed in, and loved. A myth is a truth that cannot be proven, can only be lived for, believed in, and loved. A myth is any story that is truer than the facts. And what Charlie was teaching me in his sometimes abrasive teaching style is that Christianity must never be reduced to just the facts. It's much, much greater than that. And I'm willing to say to you that every story in the Bible, from creation to resurrection, is more than just the facts, it's a myth. They're all myths. They all call us to engage, invite us into the stories. How do we find ourselves in these stories? It's not about what happened 2,000 years ago or 5,000 years ago or 25,000 years ago. It's what's happening right now in your life, in your heart. Faith is more than the facts. The way of Jesus is more than the facts. The love of God is more than the facts. The American novelist Tom Robbins understood the power of fiction, the power of story. You'll notice in your bulletin when we do our our call and response from the scripture reading, we say, um, you have heard the ancient story, all caps. We're referring to this myth. We're referring to whatever the story was we read today, and we're inviting you into that story. You've heard the story today of the transfiguration of Jesus And we're inviting you into that story. You've heard the ancient story. Let us listen now in our own living for the truth. The Pulitzer Prize winning poet Wallace Stevens once said, The final belief is to believe in a fiction, which you know to be a fiction, there being nothing else. The exquisite truth is to know that it is a fiction and that you believe in it willingly. Now, I know the word fiction might rub you wrong, but if faith is not fact, what is it? It's more than fact. It's myth. It's story. Maybe you can consider it fiction, that you are a part of the fiction that God is writing. The final belief is to believe in a fiction which you know to be a fiction, there being nothing else The exquisite truth is to know that it is a fiction and that you believe in it willingly. Faith is not an acceptance of facts. It is taking a step, casting your life on the beauty of God's story. It is a leap of faith. Now, I'm not saying there's no historical validity to the Bible, that there are no facts. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying it's deeper than that. It's always deeper than that. There is more, that faith is truer than just the facts. Myth is a truth that can never be proven, but can only be lived for, believed in, and loved. My faith is in the love of God and the way of Jesus. And I do not want to spend any of my time as an apologist trying to prove faith. Faith is so much bigger than that. I want to live for God. I want to believe in Jesus. I want to love the myth and let faith transform my life. Who'll be a witness for my Lord? Who'll be a witness for my Lord? Who'll be a witness for my Lord? Who'll be a witness for my Lord?
1: And so I set out to prove to you how this fantastical mythological story of the transfiguration of Jesus is true. It happens when a bride tries on the dress, you know, the dress. And her face and the faces of her mother or her sister or her BFFs light up. Because everyone knows she will say yes to this dress. You can see it in her face. It happens in all of those sappy reunion clips where a military person surprises a spouse, a parent, or a child. They get me every single time. Especially if it's at halftime of some sporting event. They're on the big screen and they didn't see it coming that moment of recognition when that long-awaited reunion is a surprise. And when the few seconds of shock wears off, you can see it in the faces of the loved ones reunited. It happens when a baby is placed in the arms of a parent for the first time. You can see it in their faces, love at first sight. It happens all the time. Transfiguration, that is. If you're watching people's faces, you can see it everywhere. When the aha comes, when beauty surrounds, when music stirs your soul, when love settles, when doubt subsides, when fears calm. When glad reunions occur, when bread is broken, when relationships are restored, when forgiveness is offered, and when forgiveness is received, when heartache has had some time to be soothed, when flowers are given, when chocolate is eaten, when I do's are spoken. When you get to hear, well done, good, and faithful servant. When tears flow. When heads are thrown back in laughter. It happens all the time. Transfiguration, that is. If you're paying attention. Transfiguration is occurring within you and all around you. All Period, the period, time period, not LOL, not a joke. If you think this event from Luke's gospel was some kind of one moment in time that can never be recreated, then that means you're not paying attention. These fantastical stories are everywhere. One of America's favorite preachers, Russ has already quoted him this morning, Frederick Beatner, helped me to remember that this week when he wrote about this text. It is as strange a scene as there is in the Gospels, even without the voice from the cloud to explain it. They had no doubt what they were witnessing. It was Jesus of Nazareth, all right, the man they had tramped many a dusty mile with, whose mother and brothers they knew, the one they'd seen as hungry, tired, foot sore as the rest of them. But it was also the Messiah, the Christ, in his glory. It was the holiness of the man shining through his humanness, his face so afire with it that they were almost blinded. Even with us, something like that happens once in a while, Beatner says. The face of a man walking his child in the park, of a woman picking peas in the garden, of sometimes even the unlikeliest person listening to a concert, or standing barefoot in the sand watching the waves roll in, or just having a beer at Saturday baseball game in July. Every once and so often, something so touching so incandescent, so alive transfigures the human face that it's almost beyond bearing. The phrase from Beatner's paragraph, the holiness shining through the humanness. That's what happens all the time. But we forget to look because we are distracted by the muddy lows of living in the valley of the shadow of death, where the news is bad and hope is lost. We become jaded with bad news and the evil that surrounds us, and we stop looking for transfigured people. The church is called to tell the story of those who have been transfigured. We are to find the places where holiness is shining through the humanness and then name it and call it out for everyone to see. Look, there he is. Look, there she is. But wasn't it interesting at the end of the scene of this mountaintop experience, did you notice the last words I read And they kept silent, and in those days they told no one of any of the things they had seen. Wow, what a shame. They told no one, because no one would have believed them. What they had seen and what they had experienced was so unbelievable unbelievable, that the only thing they knew to do was to keep it to themselves because they didn't know what to do with the unbelievable. And all these years later, we progressive theologians, we liberal Christians, we fall prey to, the same issues of those early disciples, we get to a story that is so fantastical that it's easier to slough it off as not to be believed. But why do we do that when we know for a fact that transfiguration is possible? It happens All the time. Those mountaintop experiences, if you're paying attention, just because you haven't noticed them doesn't mean that they don't exist. It means you are not looking at the world with eyes to see. If you don't know the fantastical transfiguration story, that ain't on God. That's on you. They are my new favorite sappy videos where the baby that cannot hear receives an implant and upon turning the device on, she hears her mother's voice and her face lightens up and the room is filled with a combination of giggles and tears. Or the toddler who cannot see clearly has glasses placed over his eyes and he turns and he looks at his father's face and the clarity of recognition is expressed in such profound joy on his little tiny face. When we hear with our ears and see with our eyes the transforming power of God, When we see holiness breaking through the humanness, then we are the ones that are transfigured. May it be so. Who'll be a witness for my Lord? Who'll be a witness for my Lord? Who'll be a witness for my Lord? Will you be a witness for my Lord?
0: Amen. We invite you to learn more about Park Road at parkroadbaptist.org. Park Road is a progressive faith community located in Charlotte, North Carolina, encouraging independent thought, community service, Social justice, and interfaith understanding. Today's podcast was produced with production help from Hugh Ashcraft, Brian Smith, Bruce White, and Rich Dower. Our theme music was composed by Brandon Michael Williams. Thanks for listening today. Grace and peace to you.